actually week two uh, of this series. I know that most of you know that, but we are working our way through the content from this book, um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And um, over the course of today and then next week, we're going to look at some practices. Uh, somebody, somebody might, some might call them strategies. You might call them spiritual disciplines. I know the word discipline is like bad now, but it's a good word. Uh, but we're going to go with the word practices, just things that we can do. We've talked about rhythms before. That's another way to think about it. Just a normal part of your life because the reality is you become your practices. The things that you do over and over, uh, whether you even realize it or not, influence the person that you become. Uh, one of the flaws of our sort of understanding of the way the world works is we think that we can practice certain things, but then think rightly about other things and become a different kind of person. And the reality is we're a whole person. We're a mind, a soul, a body, all together in one. And so the things that you practice get into, as, as this author likes to say, your muscle memory of your life. And that's the person you become. And so if you practice anger and anxiety and outrage, you will become a person of anger and anxiety and outrage. That's just the reality of how the universe works. And so uh, we're in uh, week two of this. And last week we talked about the problem. This week we're going to start to talk about some of the strategies to overcome them, to come alongside Jesus in his work in us and making us disciples. Um, and if you've read the book, then you'll know that the title of this book uh, comes from... Uh, a quote, a story, which recounts the conversation uh, between Pastor John Ortberg, who's kind of the mentor of this author, and then Dallas Willard, who's a uh, philosopher, Christian. And this is a summary of kind of that conversation. Uh, John Ortberg, who's a megachurch pastor out in California, calls up Dallas Willard and says, what do I need to do to become the person that I want to be, the, the Jesus follower I want to be. And this is what it says. There's a long silence on the other end of the line because according to John with Willard, there's always a long silence on the other end of the line. And then Willard says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg being the uh, sort of uh, mega church pastor that he is, and he's in that system of church ministry where you got to always keep things moving and, and always have the next thing programmed. He says, okay, but what else? Right? I mean, that's what I would ask, too. And, and, and another long silence, and Willard says, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So that's kind of the main thesis of this book. Hopefully that's the main thesis of what we're talking about these couple weeks before we get into Advent. Uh, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And I think it goes beyond spiritual life. It's the great enemy of your body. Uh, I don't know if you've tried to live in a hurry for a long period of time, but eventually you're going to crash, right? Uh, and so uh, I'm learning that lesson hard with, uh, you know, baby in the house, right? Sleep deprivation is a thing, uh, and I'm getting the minimum of that. I don't get most of it, but even so, I can feel it. And so um, I, what I wanted to do is start, is start this week by kind of going back into uh, some content from a series on a different book that we did a long time ago, uh, you may remember, called Gospel Fluency. Uh, some of you hopefully remember uh, the chart that hopefully is on the screen. And if you, uh, if you didn't remember, I want you to know this chart. I want you to know that if I've had a conversation with you in the last like three years, four years, about your sort of like a spiritual question or things going on in your life, this chart pops into my head when I'm talking to you about it. So if you're like, you know, what's the framework for when Pastor Jeff talks to me? Because I know we do that when we think about having conversations with people. I wonder what his framework for my conversation, we don't do that. But 
if you've ever wondered, like, what, where is this coming from? It's this chart. This is, we called it fruit to root. Uh, I know that those script is absolutely tiny and unreadable, but you're going to have to just trust me. I'm going to read it to you, okay? So this is uh, the fruit to root. And what it's doing is sort of showing us uh, two different trees that have fruit on the branches, right? And they're stylized sort of square trees. But on the left, on your left, we see that in that tree, there is the fruit of peace, love and joy. And so in this uh, sort of diagram, the, the, the branches or the trunk is sort of our core beliefs, the things that we are believing, right? So in this case, it's talking about who am I, what has God done, and who is God? And when we are living and the fruit of our life is peace, love, and joy, we're believing that we're loved, that Jesus has died for me and God is for me, that God is powerful and in control and he's present. And so if you were to have your life being uh, lived with that fruit, that, those are the, the things that you would notice going on. But the tree on your right, uh, the fruit of that tree is desire for control, fear, anxiety, and worry. Uh, and the reason I, uh, I like this chart is because it's a little, cuts a little too close to home when I think about this, because I can definitely relate to those fruits, uh, especially the desire for control one. That's a, that's a big one for me. And so um, if we go down the same way, we would see that when we ask the question, who am I, and we're bearing these fruits in this chart, we're saying things like, I'm not in control, but I, I think that I need to be. Uh, we believe that God stopped loving us, and so we end up with these fruits in our life. And so, again, this is just a helpful sort of self-diagnostic. So let's take this then and impose onto it this paradigm that hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life. Let's sort of do a fruit to root. Now, I had a handout. I have a handout. Uh, but of course, because life is life, the printer ran out of ink as I was printing these for you this morning. So they're kind of hard to read. But I have some up here if you want to grab one for me after the service, uh, which is basically a self-assessment. It mostly has to do with your, uh, your work life and what we would call burnout. So burnout would be like the far extreme end of a life marked by hurry, right? You get to the end of that and you would be burned out. And so uh, you take this assessment and let's say you realize that the fruit of your life, or at least part of the fruit that you're feeling right now, right? This isn't a, an overall paradigm, but let's say the part of the fruit you're feeling right now is, let's say, fatigue, restlessness, an anxious sort of rushed heart, low-grade anxiety. Many of us deal with that. We don't even realize it until someone says that or we do what we're going to talk about and try to be quiet and it comes up. And so we have this sort of a low-grade thing going on where we have this rushed heart, and it may be even coming from a good place. We, we talked last week, one of the symptoms of hurry sickness, you remember that, was workaholism, but that can also just be a need to constantly have activity going on. And, and this time of year, especially, we're prone to that in our, in our culture. So then, what's the tree looking like if we have this rushed heart? What we're saying in this series is that it's likely that the tree of your life in this sort of chart, is marked by hurry. And we covered those 10 signs of what we call hurry sickness. So I, I hope that you'll uh, grab one of these and hopefully you can read it. If not, I can send it to you digitally and you'll just kind of take an inventory. Uh, it's one of these charts where you score yourself and then at the end of it, you add up the points and you say, oh, I have some slight signs of this or not. And it's just a helpful tool to understand that. And so um, hopefully that will be helpful for you, and you'll, you'll see that this is an issue that we all deal with, and, and hopefully today we're going to 
see some of the solutions. So, so if we've done this assessment, then obviously the next thing to do, right? You go to the doctor, he gives you the diagnosis, then what do you ask? Okay, so what do I got to do, doctor? And nowadays you ask, like, what pill are you going to give me? Because that's what they do. Um, but the, things about, uh, the thing about the solution to this issue is that we don't actually find a specific command from Jesus to do the four spiritual practices that are actually laid out in this book. Uh, that would be nice, right? That'd be nice if Jesus was like, if you just do these, check these four boxes, then this will happen. But, you know, like real life, it's simply a bit more nuanced than that. So instead, let me remind you of an advertising campaign from the early 1990s, which crazy is 30 years ago. <laughs> so nuts, right? You, any, most of you probably remember this, right? Be like, Mike, I remember it. I can remember the song. I'm not going to do it, but I remember this. Uh, and just as a side note for how long ago the 1990s were, if you've been around some younger folks, like high school age, they refer to that as the 1900s. <laughs> like we refer to the 1800s, right? It's not right. It's not right, but that's what they're doing. Now, this is the Be Like Mike campaign, right? This is Michael Jordan, if you don't know who this is, MJ, his airness, greatest basketball player to ever play. Uh, now, what's the point of the campaign? Obviously, it's to sell Gatorade. That's the first, and, uh, first point of, of the campaign, the purpose. The campaign is putting out this idea. If you go on, go on YouTube and put Be Like Mike commercials, you'll see all the commercials. Uh, they're pretty fun. But the campaign is putting forth this idea that if you want to be like Mike, if you want to be a great athlete, if you want to be the, uh, a great at basketball, you have to do what Mike does. And part of what Mike does is drink Gatorade. But deeper than that, you need to emulate the life of Mike if you want to be like Mike. There was another advertising campaign about Michael Jordan. You might remember this as well. Must be the shoes, right? Same idea. You want to be like Mike? Wear the shoes that Mike wears. Drink the Gatorade. And surely your jeans will just magically become Michael Jordan's jeans and you'll be able to jump and hang in the air. But that wasn't true. Now, this idea, this kind of thinking doesn't originate with Michael Jordan and Gatorade, of course, right? Actually, this basic premise is kind of the foundation for the rabbi-disciple relationship that we actually see displayed in the New Testament. Uh, it's the foundation for the relationship that we as disciples have with Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to command his disciples to follow his way of life. He just says, follow me, and then he lives a certain way. And the expectation is, if you want to be like your rabbi, you spend time with your rabbi, you do what your rabbi does, and you become what your rabbi is. Now, certainly, Jesus has some commands that he commands us to do, but those come long after we're following Jesus. Now, this was crazy to me when I thought about it this week, but you know, Jesus doesn't ever command his disciples to pray. You would think that he would, but he actually doesn't. He just assumes that if they're going to be like him, they will do what he does and pray, and that will be part of their life. And he teaches them how to pray, teaches us how to pray, but he never says, you must pray, you must obey this. That's not one of the commands. That's part of his way. In fact, Christianity, until uh, later on in the New Testament, is just called the way. They didn't call them Christians. They called them followers of the way because this is what it was about. And so the, throughout the history of the church, 
these sort of way of life things that Christians have been practicing or following have been called spiritual disciplines. And if you look at any list of spiritual disciplines, you'll see that the top of that list is a practice that we see right from the life of Jesus. It's uh, by all of those who have been uh, like masters of practices of spirituality would tell you that this is the most important one. You got to do this one. And it's interesting that this is the one that's hardest for us because of our lives of hurry. And that is the practice that we might call silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. That's a tough one. Now, I just want to note that we, we, we were going to talk also this week about Sabbath. There's four practices in this book. We allotted two weeks for them, ironically, because we didn't have enough time to talk about hurry. But... Uh, We were going to talk about Sabbath, silence, and solitude, and for the sake of not rushing too much, we're going to just talk about silence and solitude today, but I did want to just make note that in, in many ways, Sabbath is sort of a formalized, specific version of silence and solitude that God commands his people to practice, And if you understand that all the commands of God are actually an invitation into his life, then you see God's commands as a gift to you, not something that he's holding over your head, in which you see then Sabbath is God's invitation to practice silence and solitude in a very specific way for a 24-hour period of time once a week. And God is kind of saying, if you think about it this way, hey, listen, I'm giving you permission Like, I'm commanding you to do this. I'm inviting you into this this very specific practice. So Sabbath is sort of a really formalized version of silence and solitude. And it has a lot of other things we could say about it. And I would say that the the stuff written in this book is incredibly insightful, incredibly uh, powerful when you think about Sabbath. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, read this. It'll, It'll just do you so much good. It's not a hard read. Um, even if it's just for his teaching on Sabbath, it's really, really great stuff. But for today and for, for this series, I just want to cover silence and solitude for just a few minutes. Uh, and so many of us, I, I would say that this is, this is the biggest struggle for me in terms of spiritual practices. Bible reading, I could do it, right? Uh, prayer, got it. But actually just silence and solitude, that's a tough one for me. And it's because I've been discipled by my culture of hurry since I was a baby. It's like, you always have to be producing something and doing something and going somewhere, and that's our culture. And Jesus comes along and shows us a different way of life. And if we want to be like Jesus and how he is, a person of love and joy and peace, we have to ask, what is he practicing in his life? And so we struggle with these practices as an idea uh, because I think another aspect of it is that we've gone so far with, with thinking of uh, the life with Jesus being about grace alone, which it is, and equating grace alone with not actually having to try any, try to follow Jesus, to strive after him. Uh, but that's not the invitation of Jesus. L- listen to Jesus' famous words from Matthew 11. We, we, we quoted this last week. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And we love that part. Like, oh, great. And that there, Jesus, perfect invitation. Just come to me and it will just all be rest. But part of God's rest for you comes next. He says what? Take my yoke upon you. And what? Learn from me. Those are words that involve effort from us. 
prioritization at least. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then he goes back and says, why? Because I'm gentle and I'm lowly or humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But there is a yoke and there is a burden. He says the yoke is easy, but it's there. And in the world of Jesus, the yoke is what allows the animal to do the work that it's meant to do. And so in this word picture, what Jesus is saying is that as we come to him, we don't have to shoulder the load of making life's meaning for ourselves. And that, that's in direct contradiction to the American dream, isn't it? You make yourself. But Jesus is saying, no, come, come to me. I'm going to give you a yoke that's easy. There's going to be work. But he's going to give us the work to do in order to become the kind of people that he sees us as, that he's inviting us to be. And the first work Jesus is calling to, if we're going to be like him, is this work of silence and solitude. Now, as I read this book again, I read it back in 2019, I actually saw Facebook memories of me like posting about this book when I first read it and was shocked at how long ago it was. But as I was reading the book again, and as I've been thinking about you know, coming into this morning, I couldn't help but think of the reasons that I give and the reasons I've, I've heard so many people give in, in good faith as to why we don't have these practices as part of our lives. And of course, in a, in a culture of hurry, what would that number one reason be? It's a symptom of over-busy, hurried life. We don't have the time, right? Which is a lie. You've got the same amount of time as anybody else that's ever lived, Right? We've got 24 hours in a day. It's a, isn't it a crazy thing to think about when somebody says, I don't have the time for that? What does that actually mean? Because, of course, we have the same time. We're just putting too much stuff in that time. So we run out. And, and, and it's a joke, too, right? I wish we had more hours in the day for what? So we could be hurried for longer? That wouldn't fix anything. And so it's not a matter of actual time. It's a matter of importance and values, which is why assessment tools like we looked at, the fruit to root, um, if you want to fill out this sheet, are so important. So let me show you an example of this from the first disciples. It's from Matthew 4. Jesus just actually, ironically, is coming out of the desert and calling the first disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Right? Makes sense. That's what fishermen do. They throw nets into the sea. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then look at verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now we usually focus on Jesus' words here, but, but I want to focus today on the reaction of these men. They drop their nets and they follow Jesus. What is that? For a fisherman to drop his net and follow is to radically reorient his life around the rabbi that just invited him to follow. That's what's happening here. This is part of the call of Jesus to us as well. This is part of what it means to die to yourself and follow after me. To, to radically reorient our life around the teachings and the practices of the life of Jesus and to follow him. And so if silence and solitude are very obviously in the Gospels part of the life of Jesus, then for us to follow him means that we must, again, reorient our entire life around his way in order to be a people marked by love and joy and peace 
and not marked by that opposing force that in our day is hurry. We have to reorient our life. So what does silence and solitude look like for Jesus? So I'm going to read a few things from uh, the book as we go on. But on page 123, if you've grabbed a copy of this, I still have, I think, five or six. uh, We see the author lay out some teaching on the idea that Jesus went to the wilderness to find time alone with God. Now, there's a word there, and it was really interesting to study this word. Uh, It's the word eremos, and that word doesn't necessarily mean a desert. So you don't have to take this literally, although some in church history have, like the Desert Fathers. Uh, But it just means a deserted place. I think the most helpful one for us, uh, instead of wilderness or desert, uh, is just a quiet place. That Jesus went to a place where nobody else was. He went to a quiet place. Now, again, we read that, and, and in our day and age, we look back on this, and we think, gosh, Jesus, I mean, it, must be, it was easy for Jesus. He didn't have a job. Like, you know, he wasn't that busy. But actually, again, if you read through the Gospels, we see stories of Jesus uh, being told, for instance, that everyone's looking for you, Jesus. a priority for Jesus, and then everything else flowed out of that. But for us, for me, so often, I find myself trying to add life with God into my schedule that already exists. Instead of going, life with God is this foundation, and from that flows everything else. And so if we try to do that, if we try to just kind of insert God into an already hurried life, it's just not going to work. What we must do is we must drop our nets, so to speak, follow Jesus' way. Jesus even said no to good things sometimes in order to keep his orientation towards a life with God intact. Now listen to this. This is from uh, 126 here in this book if you want to go back and reference it later. Did I put a bookmark? Oh, I did. This is from uh, page sorry, 27. It says this, there's a story in Mark 6 where the disciples were just uh, dead tired after a few weeks of kingdom work, and we read this. So many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Any young parents can relate to that, right? And he even says that in the book. Uh, I I read that with Amy uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was like, yeah, we've been there. And so what does Jesus say? He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, that's the Aramos, to a deserted place place because life is life and so even the Jesus and the despite for this that they had to strive to protect and, and create space to be quiet and alone with God but this was the prioritize that high time with God you may prioritize it that much that you'll maybe wake up half an hour earlier than everybody else in the house which might mean you have to go to bed an hour earlier and not watch that extra episode of that show that you love right and, that, and I'm preaching to myself Like maybe one less episode of Ted Lasso at night means I can wake up before the baby gets up and needs a diaper change and a bottle and I can spend some time alone with God. And I will just say mornings are the best because it's quiet. It just just is. But let's, let's close by just getting really practical. 
When we say silence, what do we mean? What do we mean by silence? Obviously, the word silence means quiet. And so in the book, uh, the author gives us a couple helpful categories. There's external quietness and internal. And so external is exactly what you think it is. It's It's when you're up early or you're out in nature or you're in your room and it's actually quiet. When your ears are humming with the din of silence. Now that line got me because when I'm actually quiet, I feel like it's loud. Because the silence sort of like, and and what do we do? Grab them Bluetooth headphones and escape. And, And what he's saying is if you do that, you will not live the life with God that you are meant to live. So, so that's the stuff that's easy to down. Turn off the cable news that's just running in the background. Turn the music off. Uh, put the baby for a nap. Figure out a way to be quiet. That's the stuff that's easy to figure out. But, but we all know that for most of us, if I'm honest, the reason why we all have that external noise on all the time is that we're uncomfortable, we're maybe even a little bit scared of the other category of silence, and that's the internal silence, the internal quiet. Because we know deep down that if we actually get quiet, if we actually have to deal with those, those fears and those pains and those hurts and that betrayal or whatever that comes up when you're actually quiet and the grief That can just pop out of nowhere when you're quiet. We know that if we do all of that, um, it's it's hard. And so we use that external noise to not have to go there, right? And I have, I I mean, if you want to get a masterclass on rationalizing, come talk to me. I'm great at it. Oh, well, I need to study this more. I need to learn more about this. And actually what's going on is I don't want to let God in. Like it hurts too much or it's too weird and painful and so I just don't want to be quiet and so we we might even use something as spiritual and as good as bible reading right Uh, all the time I catch myself doing that let me just be quiet with God oh let me study what this word means in the original language And, and I'm not quiet any longer and I'm not still and I drown out that internal noise that I actually don't want to deal with but here's the thing Internal noise is where the real spiritual discipline is actually. That, that's where it actually is. Internal quiet is where we actually become a people of love and joy and peace. Internal quiet is where we commune with God and we become what we've, we've said many times, we become that non-anxious presence in the world. But to get there, to even get there, we have to drop our nets follow Jesus, we have to find a quiet place with him, we have to come away with him, we have to turn off all that external noise, literally, like shut our phone off, shut our TV off, all that stuff, and just be quiet with God alone, which is the the last piece of silence and solitude is solitude. Now, we just went through two years of what felt like forced solitude, right? Still kind of going through it, some of us. I have pastor friends who, you know, they tell me about folks in their churches and folks that they know who, like, haven't seen anybody. 
um, for, for all this time, and it's, and it's really hard. And so th- this is a point that, a distinction that we see in, in, in this book that I really want to emphasize. Solitude is not the same as isolation. Those are two different things. Isolation, generally speaking, bad. Solitude, great. Good for you. So again, when we say solitude, we mean to be alone, but as Jesus in his way, what we mean by solitude is alone with God. Alone in the community of God. Jesus was not practicing isolation when he went to the desert. He, he wasn't practicing isolation when he went up on the mountain to pray. He was practicing solitude. And solitude and silence go hand in hand because to be alone but not to be quiet is to not be alone with God. To be alone but to not be quiet is to not actually be alone with God. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life and it's full of them. Solitude is where we actually feel most connected to God. If you can quiet down the external noise and get that internal noise low enough that you can hear the voice of God, this is when you'll actually feel most connected to God and therefore, paradoxically, actually grow most in your desire to live in community with other followers of Jesus on a deep, real level. Getting alone time with God our Father is what makes us realize that I have brothers and sisters that I love and I want to be with in community. So this week, here's how I want to invite and challenge you. And I want to make this as practical as I can. I just want to invite and challenge you to find 30 minutes to an hour to be alone with God. You've got the same 24 hours a day as you did last week. You just got to rearrange some of the stuff. Right? 30 minutes to an hour. I was going to say 10 minutes, but man, it just takes longer than that. 30 minutes to an hour. 30 minutes to an hour to be alone with God, not to read a good book, not to have some plan for prayer, although prayer is great, have those things, but this 30 minutes, not even to read the Bible, but this 30 minutes, turn off all the external noise, sit in quiet, and simply ask God to be with you. And what you'll find out is he has been all this time. And if this isn't a practice for you right now, I want to warn you, it's a challenge. I was telling Amy last night in the car on the, on the ride home, we went to a kid's birthday party at the bowling alley and on the ride home, and we were just kind of talking about this. And, and I just said, man, I can just, you know, as I get up tomorrow, I just feel kind of like a hypocrite because I'm struggling with this right now myself. I'm preaching this to myself. Find 30 minutes. And, and as we said, I like to call it that I'll just do this real quick. And it eats that 30 minutes alive. I sit down for 30 minutes quiet with God. Oh, let me just answer this email real quick. Let me just send this text real quick. And an hour's gone by. So you, you might have to make a plan for this. You might have to take a day or two. Find a place to go. Figure out when am I like alone in the house or can I find a park bench that's pretty quiet. Make a plan. If this is a priority in your life, Orient your life around this. Make a plan to find a place for silence and solitude. Figure out what that is. And then once you have that place and time, turn off all the external noise and simply wait for God. As we sang about today, I'm listening, God. I'm here. I I just want to hear you. And then after that, repeat that every day for the rest of your life. And find times to maybe take a retreat once a month or figure out ways. Because I promise you, if you start doing this as a practice, you're going to want more of it. And you're going to find more time. You're going to find more and more time. And so 
the, the key to this, I just, I just want to say this as we close. Anytime we talk about spiritual practices, anytime we talk about Bible reading or prayer or silence and solitude or the things we're going to talk about next week, I know that the temptation for us is to just hammer ourselves when we don't do it. Well, oh, I missed a couple days. I'm, I'm a bad Christian. And, but I, I want to just challenge you to flip that in your mind. Every time that you feel like I slipped up is just an opportunity to come back to your loving father. It's just another opportunity to reenact the story of the prodigal son where you come home and he runs out with open arms to meet you and throws a party. That's what slipping up is an opportunity for. Let me just finish with this last passage. just from, uh, I think, one, yeah, 135. This is a, a hard but good uh, good quote. Throughout church history, most of the master teachers of the way of Jesus have agreed silence and solitude are the most important of all the spiritual disciplines. Henry Nouwen said it bluntly yet eloquently, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and listen to him. Notice the lack of nuance, no exceptions to the rule, no self-deprecating story to soften the blow. He is just honest, meaning now, and if you don't set aside time to be alone with God, your relationship to him will wither on the vine. And that's, again, all of this is invitation into the life of Jesus. All of this is invitation into what we just spent 300 weeks or whatever it was in John talking about, that the purpose of this is to believe in Jesus and in believing you have been invited into the life with him. That's what these practices are. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this uh, time to not be in a hurry and to uh, just sit and think and and self-assess. And we thank you that uh, we can lean into the, the teaching of other followers of Jesus who Uh, are wise on these certain things and that we can learn from them. And so I just pray uh, this week that we would figure out a plan and and a way to to just start with 30 minutes of just being alone and quiet with you and and see where that leads. Uh, We we sang earlier, Father, that everything you speak is life to us. And so I pray that we would make space for you to speak to us. And uh, I just ask that as we go out from here that, again, we would find that space, that you would make us into people who are different than our world because we're not in a hurry all the time and we're, we're not a people who are ridden with anxiety because we're spending time with you, Father, and that we would see your grace in that. And we just ask you to be with us, to, to make us aware of your presence as we go out from here. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.